This is Legal and Compliance Insights from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. This is the podcast helping you navigate the legal and compliance landscape wherever your business takes you. This episode is part of our ongoing series on ESG. In previous episodes, we've looked at the role that ethics and compliance professionals play in this space, the ways in which companies can integrate ESG into their existing compliance frameworks, and also at the significant impact that the COVID pandemic has had on shedding light on the S aspects of ESG and the governance standards that underpin good social performance. I'm Maria Knapp. I'm the partner for Control Risks Compliance, Forensics, and Intelligence Department in the EMEA region. In this episode, I'm speaking to my colleagues, James Lurie and Shika Kerr. Their work often takes them into the field, on the ground where our clients are or intend to operate. In this discussion, we look at what it takes to do really effective social compliance and ESG diligence that goes beyond tick box in often tricky and dynamic contexts. We'll cover a lot of ground, including What is social compliance and how is it different from deal diligence? Why and when do James and Chika go on site to conduct deal diligence and social compliance for their clients? Where can you find useful guidance and their tips on best practice shared from their experiences? James is the director for our social compliance and labor rights practice which provides support to companies setting up and implementing social compliance frameworks, monitoring their operations for social risks, enabling companies to implement resilient strategies, especially when it comes to that S part of ESG. He's based in Dubai. Shika focuses on due diligence to help clients make decisions about entering new markets, making investments, and establishing their supply chains. She's based in our Delhi office. Both have considerable experience conducting compliance assessments on project risks, including human rights, labor practices, land resettlement, and other social governance issues. So here to share their insights, a warm welcome to James and Shika. James, I'm going to start with you really just to explain from your perspective, in terms of the unstoppable rise of ESG at the moment, why the focus on the kind of on the ground and the operating environment aspect of this has accelerated in in recent years? Thanks, Maria. I think it's almost a cliche at this point to say that the last 12 months of COVID have been disruptive. But a positive trend, as you say, to come from the pandemic has been the rapid acceleration of ESG investing. So that's a focus on the environment, social and governance factors that indicate how sustainable a business is. But it's not just investors that are behind this shift. Governments such as the UK and China have, of course, made big promises on carbon reduction. And others such as the EU have plans to hold businesses to account for the human rights harms in their supply chain. And consumer attitudes are changing too. You know, there's certainly more awareness about the impact that a two pound T-shirt or chicken has on people and the resources that produce it. And of course, companies themselves have realized that sustainability and resilience are two sides of the same coin when it comes to the long-term nature of the business. 
So turning back to the pandemic, I think it's within the S of ESG that we've seen one of the biggest impacts, and that's been on vulnerable workers and communities who are part of every value chain on the planet. These are the people that are often bonded through debt to an employer, may not have a contract, don't have medical support, not free to travel, or in extreme cases are subject to modern slavery conditions. And we know the pandemic hasn't caused inequality in society, but it did expose it for everyone to see. So I think, Maria, that this is why we've seen this renewed urgency of social compliance programs right now. You're using the term social compliance, which not all of our listeners might have come across yet. Can you just, in a nutshell, tell us what it is, but also how important it is for the sustainability of an asset or the resilience of an investment? Forgive my bad automotive analogy here, but I tend to think of most ESG reporting as being what the showroom wants you to know about the vehicle, and then social compliance as being the test drive to see how it actually performs. So social compliance itself is a, a continual process. It requires businesses to recognize and protect the health, safety, and rights of employees in their value chain, and of course, the community and environment in which they operate. And these are really key sustainability factors in any business or investment. So social compliance is typically measured through an audit which reports on the organization's social performance. But a crucial component that we often find lacking in many approaches is, of course, remediation. And we're talking here beyond a list of non-compliances. You, know, you can tell a supplier where a problem is, but it's even better if you can work with that supplier to fix it. In the end, though, where social compliance really can help us is with identifying factors that affect a business's social license to operate. So this is essentially an unwritten social contract the company has with its employees, its trade unions, communities and government. And these stakeholders will lend their support to the businesses that they perceive to be well managed, treat its employees well and minimize its impact on local resources. And although a social license is difficult to measure and constantly in flux, once this license is lost, it's really hard for the business to get it back or even operate it really becomes unsustainable. So it has to be continually maintained. And this is where social compliance is such a key tool in helping that out. James has explained that social compliance is a process. Social compliance assessments and audits are designed to ensure companies' activities meet their own enterprise social values, their external performance standards and international best practice. So the work is triggered by a couple of needs, designing, implementing, and testing the effectiveness of systems, identifying weaknesses, and then right-fitting or remediating social compliance in the, in the value chain. Shika, can you clarify how the work that you do contrasts or connects with this? Sure, Maria. My work mostly entails supporting our clients in making specific and time-bound business decisions on proposed investments and partnerships. And so I design and manage bespoke due diligences through which our clients can better evaluate commercial track records and reputations of their proposed partners. Our objective in conducting due diligences is to gather insights from public records and from our intelligence networks on the ground, which we then use to assess risks and opportunities for our clients. However, it is when we are evaluating risks against defined social and governance factors is when the need for field work to gather inputs from local sources on the ground, for example, becomes crucial. The common thread between due diligence and social compliance, therefore, is the need to get local or area-specific vantage points from where we can identify and factor in local nuances, and that is possible only when we are able to be closer to the action, either by way of site visits or by tapping into our local intelligence networks. Just by way of an example, 
The Indian subcontinent is a particularly challenging jurisdiction, which is made up of myriad local nuances based on culture, gender, religion, and politics, and a layered regulatory landscape, which makes it a tricky operating environment to navigate. And so getting truly local insights from ground zero can really enhance an organization's readiness in responding to potential social and governance risks, and for them to be able to spot opportunities for remediation that wouldn't otherwise become obvious from a traditional due diligence exercise. Can you give me maybe an example of where you've put that theory to test? Well, we recently supported a client in evaluating an opportunity in India's renewable energy sector. They were keen to identify operating risks at one of their target entities' project sites, and these sites were spread across different locations in the country. And we found that the local managers at these potential project sites had adopted their own strategies to manage on-site issues pertaining to land acquisition, labor contracts, and the organization's engagement with nearby local communities. Having local knowledge and expertise on these jurisdictions, therefore, through field visits and by using our local intelligent networks was crucial for us to identify areas where the target's activities exposed them to risks. It also enabled us to assess areas where there was deviation from industry best practices or internationally recognized standards for social compliance. Eventually, we were able to gain this information at the very early stages of our evaluation, and it became very important and supported the client's readiness in their evaluation of the opportunity and they were then able to develop appropriate and remedial measures as required. What I hear from you there is is that transparency, in addition to just it being a necessity in trying times like this to make good business decisions, is actually tied to value, company value and investment value. James, are you seeing a similar trend where you're situated in the Middle East? Well, Maria, here in the Middle East, we live and work in a region with a high number of migrant workers up to 90% of the population in some countries, such as Qatar. We've also had decades of construction and infrastructure development fueled by oil and gas wealth. In recent years, there's been much more attention on social compliance and working conditions. This has been brought by international brands, developing projects, and also several mega events in the region, such as the World Cup in 2022 and Expo 2020 Dubai. Not only has this attracted the attention of investors, NGOs and the media, but it's led to rapid reforms in labour laws and standards for workers in the region. But compliance really does remain a key challenge in supply chains. Of course, as with everywhere, COVID has increased investor scrutiny in working and living conditions for vulnerable workers. It's become a string attached to the money. But even without this, we have already seen many large companies in the region integrating social compliance with their sustainability strategies. So you're both speaking to both really global trends around value drivers and post-pandemic business imperatives, but also quite a localized perspective or kind of regional perspective on these issues, which is really interesting to see how they kind of manifest a little bit differently. And I think you've clearly set out the trend and the need for more focus on this. Moving a little bit more to kind of where to start or what's the best approach to tackling this. James, I'm going to turn back to you because I know you've been working on the labor rights side with kind of standards and guidelines that are very well developed and specific, but there's myriad other areas that have their own frameworks and standards and companies often grappling with the best way to distill this down to something that they can make work. So with so many 
standards and guidelines to choose from, and, and some of which are, are, are essential within industry sectors. Which do you find the most useful in the area of social compliance? You're absolutely right. And of course, there are many standards, but here are some I think are the most common. The first is the supply chain management framework from the Business Social Compliance Initiative. Another is the SA8000 social certification standard, which is developed by Social Accountability International. And a really popular framework is the one provided by SEDEX, who offer a platform for sharing data on sustainable sourcing. And they issue the SEDEX members ethical trade audit, the SMETA audit, where suppliers and brands can share audit results. But of course, audits can be based on any third party or international standard. And any organization may also use its own criteria that draws on elements of these, including any relevant local laws. And this is probably the approach we would recommend. Select an audit framework that's rooted in best practice, but can flex with the operating environment and adapt to risks. When James referred earlier to the sort of shop window versus test driving, there's quite a lot we can actually see in, in the shop window and using desktop due diligence, intelligence gathering, and to an extent, self-certification has its uses. Shika, can you tell us a bit about some of those uses as well as the limitations? In the Indian subcontinent, for example, the Kingdom of Bhutan is considered less transparent, whereas countries like India and Bangladesh usually end up providing substantial information and misinformation in circulation. Similarly, several companies also resort to self-certification compliance methods to carry on their operations and compliance assessments in this regard. These systems carry the risk of somewhat boilerplated, biased, and restricted information gathering processes, which may in effect defeat the purpose of a due diligence exercise altogether. Such an exercise may not always consider local nuances and operating realities, which we consider essential for assessing risks from a perspective of business continuity. Some businesses also may not have clearly defined policies in this regard or trained in-house experts to conduct such assessments, and in these instances, it becomes important for conducting and ensuring that the due diligence exercises that we carry on are objective and efficient. It sounds like oftentimes, particularly in the trickier operating environments, that targeted site-based activities are really going to be essential to capture that local nuance you've mentioned, particularly with companies that don't have well-developed or tested policies in place. James, can you tell us in your experience where companies either go wrong with audits, where they miss some of that nuance and how they can capture it better, and where site-based activities should really come into play? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, where do you start with this one? It's many and varied. But honestly, I think most companies struggle with the scale of the problem, You know, simply not knowing how exposed they are through their value chain tiers and how to approach that assurance in the first place. As a result, we find that some organizations will take an arm's length approach through a central policy and standard supplier code of conduct. They might then only audit compliance at the tier one level and then say it's up to their suppliers to ensure compliance beyond this. And this can give a false sense of assurance as the company tends to find that the tier one suppliers perform well, but then the true risks remain hidden in other tiers. Another issue is how audit programs are used. I remember a, a sourcing manager from an apparel company once told me that they would have been far better off standing at their factory gates, handing out dollar bills to every worker instead of spending on audits. 
But what he meant was the company used an audit schedule based simply on auditing every supplier in their chain rather than targeting their audits on risk factors where they could have had more impact. And then finally, and I know this one is going to sound very obvious, but things change. An audit, of course, is a snapshot in time and what was good six months ago doesn't mean it will be good today. This is why the use of risk indicators that monitor for this change are really helpful in triggering audits or other assurance activity. And we've seen this in the reviews of employer-provided housing that we do here in the GCC. One contractor, for example, who houses over more than 3,000 people told us that there was no need to visit the housing unit as it meets the highest standards in the country. So of course, our team visited and found cockroaches throughout kitchens and electrical safety issues and overcrowded bedrooms, amongst other things. Uh, And the difference was that the management of the housing unit had changed six months ago and cut costs. And this was obviously a key risk indicator that was not monitored. So risk indicators seem like a really good way to tie that concept of impact that you mentioned in with the social compliance process. And one of the key aspects of what you've just described is also, again, in terms of impact, meeting local needs and organizational expectations, because it's easy to forget that what we're actually managing in this compliance process is a better local operating environment and and working environment as part of that. How do you make those match, James? How do you ensure that those local needs meet with organizational expectations? Yeah, it's a good question because many companies really struggle with this. And uh, I would say that probably the starting point is that compliance activity will be doomed if a policy or requirement doesn't fit with the operating environment. So, for example, an international company might have a human rights policy on freedom of association. But if local laws in many countries don't permit this, then clearly there's a challenge from the start. So often companies will update that policy to say where local laws allow, and then the audit finding will just say not applicable. But of course, this doesn't change the lack of representation for raising employment issues and means that workers might take more extreme action, such as strikes to get their grievances heard. So it's really important to adapt requirements to local constraints while meeting the intention of a policy, which in this case would mean using a worker committee to make sure that workers are represented. That local nuance affects how a company should actually monitor and evaluate those risk triggers, as far as you've just explained, which I think is really useful takeaway. So some of the things that we all know as as compliance, speak the language of the local audience, access people through channels that are familiar to them, et cetera. And it sounds like that's really, really key in, in social compliance to catch issues early on. Shika, how do you see this kind of match up between local needs and and organizational expectations, which can be sometimes quite tick box or or a little bit more rigid? What we have experienced in advising clients in this part of the world is that it becomes extremely important for organizations to trickle down and ensure the trickling down of policies with regards to social and governance compliance from the headquarters down to the local operating area. We've also witnessed situations where such translations in policies that are held at the headquarter level are not necessarily acted on or elaborated upon at the local level. And these issues tend to create in the long term a reputational impact for companies, which in most cases are often caught completely off guard when dealing with such issues, not from the inside out, but from the outside in. 
So it sounds like a really iterative process where you need the organization to raise awareness and clearly communicate its expectations, but equally that organization needs to respond to the way that those policies and processes can actually be implemented on the ground. Can you give us a bit of an example of how that works? I think that a fitting example to elucidate this is from March 2020 in India, where the government imposed a stringent lockdown overnight in the wake of the pandemic, resulting in a near halt of economic activity in the country. The maximum impact was faced by the migrant labor workforce, which, in the absence of any means of livelihood in cities, decided to walk hundreds of kilometers back to their villages. While businesses found themselves grappling with the virtual disappearance of their supply chains, more significantly perhaps, the episode exposed the existing vulnerabilities in labor welfare and social compliance management. Therefore, a key priority for businesses operating here in India is to create resilient processes that enable them to weather such disruptions in the future, which I think can be achieved by adopting a risk-based and remediation-focused approach in supply chain management. So we've been talking a little bit about the limitations of some of the more desktop-driven compliance processes when it comes to social compliance and the benefits of really on-the-ground work for understanding the local nuances and therefore better risk-basing, but also better adapting the monitoring element of your social compliance projects, which are absolutely key. How would you say, James, businesses can, in a nutshell, adapt their social compliance programs to do what they're aiming to do better? I'd say several things. The first is really move beyond the checklist and focus on those items that are red flags or root causes of key risks to stakeholders. And and the reason for this is quite simple. It's because those who abuse labor rights or don't follow environmental regulations won't constrain their bad practices to your checklist criteria. So nor should your compliance activity. It's about adapting to the reality of the risk environment. A good example of this is not using checklists of yes-no questions in interviews with workers. For example, debt bondage is a key challenge for migrant workers in the Gulf region here. And often agents or middlemen in labor-sending countries will charge fees to candidates for items which should have been covered by a potential employer, such as flight tickets or visas. And of course, this can leave workers or their families in considerable debt for many years until that's paid off. And these agents coach workers on what to say to employees or uh, auditors. So a direct question like, have you paid a recruitment fee, will always be met with a no. I think another lesson is not to try to tackle social compliance challenges in isolation. Really, the most effective programs we see are the ones in which fixing root causes is a shared responsibility with suppliers, industry peers or associations. Companies often deliver the results of an audit to a supplier and then give them a timeline to close out the items found. But some suppliers tell us that they lack the understanding or the resources to fix the issues and then, of course, are penalised further when they don't comply, which makes matters worse. So I think leading companies we see work with suppliers to address the root causes of issues and then they adapt to remediation so that the intended outcomes of a policy are met in ways that work for all parties. Great tips, James. From your perspective, Shika, your work often takes you to the field or on the ground with companies trying to implement social compliance programs. Have you seen any techniques that you would recommend or give any tips of how companies can perform these audits better? Well, like everything else, 
information is key to assessing risks involving an asset or an investment. And it's particularly important to gain access to qualitative and quantitative and reliable data for such assessments. This also becomes extremely important for us when we are corroborating findings from our traditional sort of commercial and compliance-led due diligence exercises. Being on sites, for example, is helpful when we need to address issues that require deeper penetration or assessment, or when we want to be able to pick up on leads that we otherwise do not find disclosed or available in the public domain. This also becomes important for us when we need to obtain sources of information from sources on the ground rather than from a high level perspective, such as from people sitting in the boardrooms, for example. It also becomes important for us to be on the ground in cases where we need to have knowledge and expertise of the local operating environment, where we need to know the local context and the local nuances. These are particularly projects that are situated in remote locations, for example, or even in jurisdictions where the information is not always made available through the public domain. There's so much rich advice that you've given to listeners, but if you had to pick a a quick call to action, what would it be? James, I'll go to you first. I would say use risk to target uh, your audit activity. Social compliance programs can be super effective when risk information is used at the due diligence stage to target that activity. So I would say beyond anything else, base everything you do on risk. Chika, how about you? I think the current developments that we are witnessing provide an opportunity for businesses to respond in an effective and impactful manner. This includes reconfiguring and even creating more resilient supply chain operations, as well as to elevate the impact of their operations within the local community and create a strong operating environment for themselves. Thank you very much for sharing your insights. Social compliance and and measuring social performance is going to be on the agenda for companies, certainly in the coming year, but for years to come. And getting this pragmatic view from the experiences that you've had in very recent projects is incredibly helpful. Thank you both for your insights. My pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you, Maria. Thanks, Shika. Thanks very much, James and Maria. It was a pleasure chatting. If you enjoyed what you heard today on Legal and Compliance Insights, make sure to subscribe and check out our other podcasts as well, like The Global Insight, a fortnightly conversation about the most pressing issues facing businesses around the world. All our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.